Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. I'm very pleased to introduce Tim Armstrong, Chief Executive Officer of Oath, which is a subsidiary of Verizon follow, following their acquisition of Yahoo AOL. He comes to us from the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. Tim, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start by asking, what exactly does Oath want to be? Does it want to be a content provider, a major search engine, or a media distribution platform? So uh, Lisa, thanks for having me on. Uh, Let's take a giant step back and I'll uh, explain Oath in the context of where the world's going from a consumer standpoint. Uh, There's one really significant trend that we're seeing across all types of media right now, which is the acceleration of consumers adopting mobile as their uh, content medium of choice. Uh, Verizon is a company that has is a global leader in uh, network technology, broadband, and wireless, and is now on the forefront and and the leader in 5G, which is going to bring even more connectivity and bandwidth to consumers. Verizon acquired AOL and Yahoo and formed Oath. Uh, to essentially bring what is the linear transition of content into the mobile world. And we are one of the leaders in the world right now of mobile content and distribution for consumers. So when you ask what Oath is, uh, Oath is a uh, mobile media uh, company that's attached to one of the best mobile companies in the world, Verizon. And our goal is to super serve consumers in things like sports, news, finance, uh, video. We just announced uh, yesterday that we're going to be broadcasting on mobile live video, the four NFL games in the United States uh, this weekend, the playoff games. So as a consumer, you can download the Yahoo Sports app, 
and instantaneously watch the NFL games, uh, the playoff games this weekend. And for a consumer who loves mobile and who's on mobile, uh, that is an unbelievably great experience and a real, real visionary on Verizon's part to think about the mobile consumer as not just a wirelessly connected uh, network connection, but what's the service and what's the content love that consumers have. And that's really what Verizon's goal is, is to bring a lot more great services to the mobile consumer. Is the idea here that the mobile consumer uh looks at different information or uses uh, media in a different way than just streaming uh, and any device? Or is it that uh, you can get different ad uh, ad dollars for, for mobile-specific streaming? Yeah, the, um, you know, the, the mobile consumer, uh, first of all, the, the mobile consumers we see at the high end, meaning the consumers that consume the most on mobile, have crossed over the TV amount of time per day. So the, the high-end mobile consumers right now are consuming about four hours of content a day on their uh, phones. And that's important because basically those, the phones become a personalized cable box uh, to a large degree and the experiences that consumers have are able to get more and more personal and more and more targeted. So if you think in the future whether or not a consumer would want to trade off their, uh, their mobile personalized content consumption and go back to more of a linear consumption, I think most consumers would say no. So the business model is to super serve consumers on mobile with content and services the, the revenue part of uh, Verizon's business and our business is to also super serve the advertisers with mobile. And I think if you look at the ad market today, most customers are most of our ad customers are trying to figure out, first of all, they were trying to figure out how to go from linear to the internet. Mobile came out of nowhere and surpassed uh, just about every usage metric you could see on the internet. So now they're trying to figure out how to go from linear to internet to mobile. And we have one of the most significant ad platforms and networks uh, between Verizon and Oath. So we're able to super serve what the next generation of advertising is going to be. And we have a great program, great product, and great platform uh, to do that and a lot of data to help customers target. So that, that's the simple business model, but very powerful in terms of how we're thinking about the future. Tim Armstrong, how do you respond to questions about the price tag? Verizon spent more than $9 billion on AOL and Yahoo. I understand that it's going to cost about a billion and a half for these NFL, the four NFL games that you uh, mentioned. Uh, when do shareholders get to see a return on that more than $10 billion on what seems like now a content deal rather than a tech deal? So, uh, Pim, I would say, you know, basically one of the things, just to take a step back on that, on that question is, um, there's only three or four companies on the planet that have a billion consumers on digital and mobile. Oath is one of them. If I told you today was your first day on planet Earth and you had Amazon, Alibaba, Facebook, Google, Apple, and those companies and what those valuations were, and then there's a company that is purely based on mobile and purely based on internet technology that had a billion users, and I said that a company was able to acquire that company for $9 billion you'd, for one times revenue for what those companies do, I would say singularly it might be the best M&A transaction for the future ever done. Uh, the second thing I would say is when you look at the M&A landscape of what's happened in the media landscape and how much people have paid for media acquisitions, and then I told you we did the NFL deal, which is 
probably the most powerful uh, content in, in sports, in live sports, which people are really competing for. And it was on mobile, and it was a five-year deal, and we had a billion users show it to and 100 million uh, members at Verizon. Again, I think you'd say in comparison to the other M&A content deals, smart deal, smartly done at the smart, uh, at smart prices. So I, I, I would, uh, I'd put a totally opposite look on your question, which is, if I describe the assets we have, the fact that we're mobile, and the fact that we have great content and great brands, what would that be worth in comparison to the other valuations at other companies? Um, I, I think it's an unbelievably great opportunity for Verizon shareholders to play in the new economy. Yeah. And Verizon is investing in 5G, so we, we feel really good about like the future strategy and, and where things are going. Tim, uh, you say that Oath uh, has more than one billion users now, and I'm just wondering uh, how much that has grown over the past year and whether it's been accelerating, decelerating, what's the trend like? Yeah, so our, our trend is basically, our, our business basically in mobile uh, you know, grew uh, double digit percent in Q4 overall, and even in comparison to some of the other uh, social platforms and mobile platforms, we had uh, what I'd say is probably top quartile growth uh, in Q4 overall. And then as a service level, I'll give you another example. In mail, for instance, which is a major product for us where we have hundreds of millions of people that use our email products, uh, email surpassed, mobile surpassed uh, desktop there. So I think we're seeing the exact growth we want, which is the transition from desktop uh, to mobile. And uh, our overall consumer usage base has been growing and we expect that to continue to happen with mobile for, for two reasons. One is our services are getting better targeted and getting on more mobile phone tops. This, the second reason is there's another three billion people that are gonna be connecting to mobile and skipping the internet and going directly to mobile. And because we have very good mobile products, we expect to get growth, not just in the US, but also globally on our brands and services and our ad business from that, that uh, new adoption of mobile that's happening globally. I want to thank you very much, uh, Tim Armstrong. He is the chief executive of Oath, a subsidiary of Verizon. He's speaking to us from the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. Uh, earlier this year, January, uh, California State Teachers Retirement System, a $190 billion pension, joined with Jaina Partners to issue a letter to Apple. Uh, CalSTRS is actually a, a pretty big shareholder in Apple as well as Jaina Partners. And they were asking for a study to look at how using iPhones uh, would affect children. In particular, I want to bring in Anne Sheehan. She's director of corporate governance for Calsters, joining us from Sacramento, California. And thank you so much for joining us. I just want to start with how this letter came about. Did Calsters reach out to Jaina Partners? Uh, did Jaina come to you? And uh, what was sort of the motivation behind it? Oh, thanks. And thanks for having me. Well, I've had a long-standing relationship with Jana Partners. Um, they are one of the activist investors, as you know, out in the market, and we have a relationship with all the activists. We employ some. Jana is not one of our managers, but I've known those folks. I've worked with them and collaborated with them on some other issues, on their whole 
Foods. We were um, talking to them about that and some of the work that they did in Qualcomm. So I've had a long-standing relationship with Barry Rosenstein and Charlie Penner from them. And so we are frequently talking about issues of uh, mutual interest to both of us with regard to companies. Jana knows that Calsters is a long-time ESG-focused investor. We spend a lot of time here in the Corporate Governance Program on talking to companies about issues that we think are concerns and risk to the portfolio and to the performance of the company in the long run. So as I've talked to Jana about some of our ESG issues, and they had talked to me about beginning to think about putting an ESG type of fund together, um, we came up with the idea of, of combining and talking to Apple about this issue. So it made sense. Apple is a our single largest holding in our global equity portfolio. I have a very good relationship with the Apple folks. They've always been very responsive. And we felt that this was a good, important issue as we've seen the compelling research about the impact and the more research that's coming about about the impact of some of these products, not just the social media issues of Facebook and all, but also the impact of the iPhones on kids. And so we thought this is an issue that we should raise with the company, see what they're doing, see if they could do more. Because for us at Calsters, it represents a potential risk to the performance, the long-term performance of the company. And so our goal was to bring this to the attention of Apple, see what they're doing, see what more could be done to prevent any diminution of our value in our investment with Apple. Can you connect the dots for why uh, a lack of addressing this issue would cause a long-term decline in Apple share well, prices? I think the issue is a lot of parents um, are very concerned about the impact of these devices with their children. We've seen the research more. We, we as a teacher's fund, we hear from teachers, and I've, we've gotten a lot of response back about the letter that we have sent from teachers who have seen what is going on in the classroom with these. And so we see this as potentially a reputational risk for Apple. And so it's an opportunity to create more choices and options, which we think is good business for them, which could help their share price in the long run. When we look at some of these issues, they're very long-term because we're going to be in these stocks for a long time. So we see reputational risk as a potential to hurting the performance of these portfolio companies. Now, you've got more than $215 billion of assets under management. If you're, let me just put it to you this way. If you don't like what the company is doing or you wish they would do something else, why not just sell the stock and buy a company that you do support? So um, you're right. We actually have about 227 billion assets under management. Over half of that is in public equities, and two thirds of that, the overwhelming majority of that, is in the index. So we own the entire market, and as Chris Aylman, our CIO, likes to say, we will own the market as long as there are teachers in the state of California. So we do not believe in selling as a way to address an issue. We believe in engagement because we're going to be in the stock today, tomorrow, in 10 years, in 20 years, and in 50 years. So our approach here at Calsters is to engage the companies on issues like this and other risks. We've talked to a lot of companies about these types of issues, human capital, diversity, capital allocation, whatever the issue is, is the best way to address this because we are the ultimate universal long-term shareholder. And have you noticed that other big public pensions have joined you in uh, being increasingly activist? 
Yes. Um, many public funds, New York City is very active, New York State, um, the Canadian Public Pension Fund has been active. I mean, there are many pension funds around the world that are very active in their engagements with companies. What we like to say is we're passive investors and active owners. So we engage the companies in our portfolio. Would you take the same position for the lack of women as CEOs of S&P 500 companies? I mean, I believe well, that we have. Are... Go ahead. Yes. The answer is yes. Diversity is one of our key corporate governance issues here at CalSTRS. We have, for the past eight or ten years, engaged boards on the lack of women on their corporate boards, the lack of women in senior leadership, including CEOs. And so that is another issue that we care deeply about because the research shows that if you have greater diversity inside the boardroom as well as in the workforce, including in the CEO, you get better performance from the companies. Both Credit Suisse and McKinsey have shown that diversity creates better shareholder value in the long run. So that's another issue that we have spent a great deal of time. And as you can appreciate, and with a teacher's fund like us, two-thirds of our members are female. So it's an issue that resonates. And here in California, we're a very diverse state. we got to leave it there, but thank you very much. Anne Sheehan is Director of Corporate Governance for California State Teachers Retirement System. That's CalSTRS, and they're based in Sacramento, California. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. How will U.S. public policy affect your investments? Well, one person to ask is Michael Zizis. He is the chief U.S. public policy and municipal strategist for Morgan Stanley. He joins us in our 1130 studios. Michael, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So maybe just outline. I know that you've got three policy channels that you say investors ought to pay attention to. What are they? Well, it's regulatory, legislative, and trade. Um, the legislative one is fairly simple. Uh, if you look at what's on the agenda, uh, the only thing that we think really kind of matters to market in the macro economy is whether or not they get an infrastructure deal done. Um, in our view, the politics of getting that deal done before the midterm are really tough. And then we've got a lot of questions about the efficacy of the policy itself, right? Which I can go into detail to if you want, but where it's basically telling investors is this is something you need to educate yourselves on. And maybe the midterm is going to open up a channel to an infrastructure spend that's a, that, that's a boost to the economy, but it's not as near-term a risk as some of these other channels, namely the trade channel, where you actually have some hard deadlines in the next six weeks or so, where the administration is going to make some decisions that are going to tell us whether or not we're actually moving in a somewhat more protectionist direction. I want to home in on the trade issue because we haven't talked as much about that. And yeah. that has the greatest potential in the short term to cause some serious market disruption. So can you walk us through the deadlines that we're facing and uh, what the potential market response would be? Yeah. So, I mean, just quick background. Uh, the president has the authority under a number of different U.S. laws to issue tariffs, right? 
And whether or not those tariffs are in compliance with WTO rules is sort of a moot point. The administration can do it if they want to. Um, there were a number of actions that were started last year under a couple of different trade laws, the most notable one, the 1974 Trade Act, um, which um, have now moved past kind of the study period and the administration has to decide whether or not to institute tariffs. So on January 26th and February 2nd, uh, respectively, um, the administration has to decide whether or not it's going to put a 35% tariff on uh, solar panels and on washing machines, right? And it seems like a little narrow, but these would be the first hypothetical actions um, which could be a signaling of a more protectionist bent. On January 15th and January 21st, there are reports due, so they don't trigger actions per se, but there are reports due on steel and aluminum that are supposed to recommend whether or not the administration is supposed to begin a tariffing regime on those products. So uh, the possible market response is that washing machines and solar panels get more expensive, or is it uh, what 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 are we what are we looking for here? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. There's a lot of data about um, how, at the end of the year, uh, overseas manufacturers of washing machines actually up their exports into the U.S. in anticipation of some of these risks kind of coming to fruition. So whether or not your washing machine is about to cost more or less is kind of an open question, but. Um, I mean, I think obviously we, we're, we're studying this pretty carefully. FX markets are going to uh, be an obvious potential kind of shock absorber for this. Uh, the, the easiest thing to say on this is that in 2017, when there were general fears about the U.S. being a little more protectionist, it showed up in dollar peso. Um, and here I would have meaning kind of, that the peso declined against the dollar. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I would I would expect that you would see that be kind of a similar signaling mechanism because. Um, certainly, the Trump administration would not be the first administration to pursue kind of a single product tariff. The Bush administration did this temporarily in the early 2000s. But given that they were talking about a broader, uh, more protectionist regime like exiting NAFTA, um, any kind of single product uh, action might be a signal that they're going to take a harder stance on NAFTA. I'm glad you brought up NAFTA because Tom Donahue, who is the president of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, in a speech today, said that withdrawal from NAFTA by the Trump administration would be a, quote, grave mistake. He says the bottom line is growth will be weakened, not strengthened or sustained if we pull back from trade. So if indeed that were to happen, would that just offset whatever economic gains are being predicted or estimated because of the tax overhaul bill? Yeah, I mean, here we rely on on kind of the, the studies from various third parties. And I think the economic consensus is, uh, you know, I don't know if it's a one-for-one one offset, but in the near term, there's a, there there's some, you know, there, there's definitely some contraction that offsets the stimulus that you're that you're getting in here. Um, you know, how it's executed, obviously, is a, there's a lot of devils in the details there. But I think, yeah, I mean, it's fair to say that the market is going to consume this as, not growth friendly, for lack of a better term. Michael, have you ever in your career gotten more calls from clients wondering what is going on? Um, probably on election night, but aside, aside <laughs> but in the for, past couple yeah, months, no, no, no. I mean, the the fourth quarter of last year was just a sort of barrage of tax questions, right? And unfortunately, I have some colleagues that are really good on the minutia of tax policy to help us out on that. And, um, you know, now we're on to obviously, you know, infrastructure is still a big incoming question, but trade is definitely picking up now because a lot of these things were, were little, little minutiae aspects of the law and vote counting and process that didn't matter 
And they matter a lot right now. Michael Zizis, thank you so much for joining us. Michael Zizis, Chief U.S. Public Policy and Municipal Strategist for Morgan Stanley. So if you see an increase in the price of a washing machine, you'll know why. Right now, I want to bring in Vincent Piazza, Senior Equity Energy Analyst and Global Sector Leader for Bloomberg Intelligence. Vincent, uh, I feel like there is an increasing amount of uh, disagreement when it comes to the price of crude. You have some saying that OPEC will try to talk down prices if oil tops $70 a barrel, whereas Citigroup sees uh, the price of crude climbing toward $80 a barrel. What should we be paying most attention to here? You know, I think we uh, always have this type of vociferous debate around uh, uh, New Year, right? Uh, a New Year starts, we look ahead and try and read all of the tea leaves. Um, conclusion is no one really knows, right? Um, what we have today is a, a, a two-pronged attack, right? You have OPEC trying to control capacity uh, to really control that price. Uh, and you have prices now bleeding into the $60 range, which allows U.S. operators to uh, turn on the spigot again, right? Uh, and I, we, we've talked about this from time to time, the resilient output, the shorter cycle response of U.S. and U.S. shale to this uh, uh, price signal. And production has been extremely resilient. Uh, we're marching towards uh, 9.7, 9.8 million barrels per day. Uh, we're looking at uh, 2018 output over 10 million barrels per day. Estimates we've seen for 2019 point to roughly 11 million barrels per day for the U.S. So the resiliency of output continues to press forward, and that does concern um, OPEC because what tends to happen is as that price bleeds higher, compliance with output curbs uh, tends to decline and you tend to see those barrels bleed through. Hey, Vincent, uh, what about the uh, the companies that use fossil fuels as a feedstock? Uh, are they still in a good position? I keep thinking of the refiners and their performance last year and the year before. Right. So if you take a look at uh, this past week, um, uh, roughly uh, 5 million barrels of uh, crude uh, fell from the stockpiles, um, but we've added roughly uh, 8 to 8.4 million barrels in gasoline and distillates. So the refiners are definitely taking advantage of that uh, wide price differential between WTI and Brent, roughly $6 at the moment. And they're definitely continuing to uh, produce those refined products. Uh, Fernando Valle, who is my colleague on the refining side, he covers this space and does a very good job of it. Um, he noted that uh, crack spreads have uh, definitely weakened um, and that supply glut from the crude side has moved over to the product side. And even with the export market allowing for a, a channel uh, to move product, uh, we still have uh, this... Uh, increased capacity flowing into uh, inventories for ref for refined products but as long as you have that wider spread it's advantageous uh for 
the refiners to maintain that elevated that elevated utilization even during this shoulder season period. Can you just give us a sense uh, quickly of the interests here? Because Goldman put out this report saying that OPEC would try to talk prices down if they got close to $70 a barrel, which seems counterintuitive because don't they want prices to go up? Well, they want prices to be at a level that is economically sufficient, but what they want what they don't want is compliance among the nations who have agreed to this supply cut to decline and barrels come back onto the market. Uh, they want this compliance to be tight to sort of manage this process, this price process. Um, it's been an engineered capacity curve curve. Um, and additional barrels onto the market on top of what U.S. can produce that will tend to uh, pressure uh, the price point of, uh, of uh, crude benchmarks. Thanks very much for coming in and sharing this with us. Uh, Absolutely. Vincent Piazza is our senior equity energy analyst and global sector leader for Bloomberg Intelligence. He basically knows everything about the energy market. I think that's a good way to say it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.